last part. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for making it available to us, just free of charge, Father, just free to us at every turn. Thank you for giving us our Bibles, that we can open them up and read them at any time we'd like. Father, thank you so much for all your grace and your love and the expression of your love in our lives. Thank you also for allowing us in the sphere of said love so that we might fellowship with each other in a way that brings glory to you. Father, we pray for those <clears throat> in our congregation that are, t that are still sick, and we pray also uh, especially for Melody's family uh, that uh, you comfort them in their time of need. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world that you might humble them before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt. And we do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, the Lord is our confidence, part 44. We had a baseline principle that we began with on Sunday. I'll give it to you here. Again, we don't want to become uh, religious about this, but this is the truth. There's a thing in the Bible called obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. There's a divine sequence that leads to blessings from God. There's a divine sequence that leads to blessings from God. And we'll look at 2 John 6, 1 John 5, 1 to 3. Go to uh, 2 John verse 6 for starters. Again, obedience of faith. There's a divine sequence that leads to blessings from God. And that's all he's been reminding us of as of late. That there's a certain order to things. A certain pathway. A way that leads to life, as Jesus might say. John, uh, 2 John, verse 6. <clears throat> and this is love. Already we're in the sphere of divine love. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments, a.k.a. obedience of faith. That we walk according to his commandments. That's what obedience of faith is, that we walk according to his commandments. And the, he writes, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. That's a, that is a very poignant statement, is it not? This is love. Not the, oh, and the hugs and the kisses and all that kind of, no. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. How about that? Try that on for size, right? That's a lot different than what you hear love is from the world, amen? A lot different. A lot different. And, and it just gives our perspectives a, a needed jolt just to say, wait a minute. This is what love is? Yes, this is what love is. It's in the Bible, therefore it's true. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. We might even say that we obey. That's what love is. That's what love does. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. 
How about 1 John 5, verse 1? 1 John 5, verse 1. First John 5, 1 John 5.1 <clears throat> Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and what? Obey His commandments. There you go again. That's what love looks like. We obey. That's the obedience of faith. That's what love looks like. Same author here, by the way. When we love God and we obey his commandments, for this is the love of God. In other words, what it means to abide in the sphere of love. What does it say? That we keep his commandments. Man, that's different, is it not? That's so different than what is peddled out there in the world. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Hmm. Remember the, that obedience is what confirms our abiding in the sphere of love. That's what John was writing about in both those instances, that obedience is what confirms our abiding in the sphere of love. In other words, you can't claim love if you're not obedient, if you're not walking in his commands. That's what we just read in two places, and those aren't the only places where obviously where that's expounded upon, but those are two places right out of the gate for us. Again, obedience is what confirms our abiding in the sphere of love. Hence the principle on the board, <clears throat> obedience of faith. There's a divine sequence that leads to blessings from God. Obviously, if you read between the lines here, you know where the Spirit's going to take us this evening. It has everything to do with obedience again. And lining those things up in our souls, understanding that if we want to be free, we have to come back to the beginning and understand the entire sequence. We can't just start here and expect to be free. There's a whole lot of things that have to happen uh, in sanctification itself, right? And that's uh, highlighted by the fact that we're obedient to his commands. And that's what draws us into the sphere of his love. While we cannot become religious over such things, the Spirit has given us this truth on the board. And as Jesus said, the truth shall make you free. The truth shall... When you understand that this is love, that you walk in His commandments, knowing that, abiding in that, sets you free. Because you're no longer a slave to the bondage that the world peddles. The love that the world peddles is literally bondage. One and the same. That's it. If you abide in that love, that kind of garbage love, you're in bondage. If you abide in his love, he says, walk in my commandments, you're free. Because that's the truth. It may not make sense. It probably makes, well, I know it makes zero sense to the human flesh. Zero. Because there's not even any real call for emotion in it, is there? No, and that's a hard thing for the flesh to swallow because the world tells us that love is all about emotionalism. The more emotional, the more love it must be, which is why people who go through the you know, dysfunction junction, 
They're like, oh, it's so in love. I'm, they're all emotional. It's, oh, I'm love, I'm love. And it's, and it's, you know, it's the honeymoon phase, right? They're way up here. Oh, I'm so in love. I'm so emotional. It's, it's the greatest love I've ever known. And then what happens? Then what? Oh, I can't stand that person. <laughs> right? And now it's, all bets are off. Now that what are they doing? They're looking for the next high. And that's the idiocy that the world peddles. And the average person chases after. The truth shall make you free. That's not Pastor Ed. That's Jesus Christ, by the way. Speaking of truth, is it fair to say that by now the following is, is such a command that we're, we're highlighting here? Read your Bible. Do you think that's a command? Gee, I think so. I think by now the Spirit has made his point. The Spirit uses the word in us to convict us of the truth. The truth enables us to discern right from wrong. The Spirit endorses our findings, yes or no, all while guiding us with his power. We can't lose with the truth. We cannot lose with the truth. This supernatural ability to discern right from wrong leads us to contemplate the very idea of integrity because that's the premise of integrity, sticking to what you think is right or wrong. But there's a nuance here. We'll go over it again. But it leads us to this conversation, this pondering of integrity itself, and as we noted on Sunday, if we think about it, lots of people have integrity in this world. However, that isn't enough. It's not enough just to have integrity by definition. It's not just enough to have integrity by definition. Integrity must have an object, for starters, it's got to have an object, otherwise it's a false claim that you even have integrity because integrity has to have an object. You have to have integrity to something, some system of thinking, some thought on some, situ some situation that has to exist for you to have integrity towards your discernment on said situation. There has to be something there. We'll just call it an object. Integrity must have an object. And that object must be holy if we are to be holy. If we want the, the output of our integrity, the decisions that we make to be holy, then the object of our integrity, the thing we have integrity to, must be holy. Obedience implies integrity. Integrity implies an object. Therefore, for obedience to lead to blessings, for example, freedom, this object then must be the word of truth. That's what we concluded. Integrity requires an object. The object then, for holiness sake, is the word of God or the word of truth. The divine mandate then on this object of our integrity is that it be holy. That it be holy. To obey something unholy, like a lie, let's say, from the kingdom of darkness. Something that blatantly uh, opposes the word of God. To obey something unholy does not lead to blessings. It leads us away from blessings. It leads us away from blessings, back to bondage. That's when we obey something unholy or we are uh, slaves to unrighteousness or instruments 
uh, of, un, of unrighteousness, that we might, uh, parastemi, present ourselves uh, as instruments unri of unrighteousness. That leads us away from blessings. Hence the point on the board, read your Bible. Read your Bible. The, the, the object of integrity must be holy for the output to be holy. So the Spirit then uses the Word in us to convict us of the truth. The truth enables us to discern right from wrong. The Spirit endorses our findings, yes or no, all while guiding us with His power. We can't lose with truth. Again, integrity must have an object, and that object must be holy if we are to be holy. As Peter expressed a little more definitively, go to 1 Peter 1.14. 1 Peter 1.14. Peter spoke about this. He wrote about this. First Peter 1.14. Thank you for my tea, Jim. I'm assuming you made it. First Peter 1.14. As obedient children, there you go again, we don't get very far without obedience. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And it implies a divine standard to live up to, a.k.a. that you know the truth. You also be holy in all your conduct. The implication, of course, is that you understand what holy conduct is. <laughs> that you understand what the Word of God has to say. What truth on the situation actually is, so that if you have any integrity in the situation, that it's based on truth. And then, if it's based on truth and you hold to your integrity, then you have holy conduct. And then in verse 16, Peter writes, Since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the mandate. Verse 16 is God's mandate. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's his will, if you would, in plain English. God's good intention is that we be sanctified, set apart, made holy, sanctified in truth. That is what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ prayed for, after all, isn't it? We're going to read that in a moment. It's funny because we keep going back to his prayer. Every so often, and I'm so grateful for it, the Spirit leads us back to this prayer as a whole. Um, so we want to do something really lovely uh, tonight. Instead of just referencing from afar Jesus' magnificent prayer to his Father on our behalf, we're going to read it. It's just Fantastic. Go to John 17, verse 1. John 17, verse 1. This is such a wonderful display of Jesus. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And here's our key verse that we've been uh, sort of pivoting on over the last few messages. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they, might, they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, Peter wrote, so we just saw uh, Jesus' words, but Peter wrote about the mandate of God in 1 Peter 1.16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God's good intention is that we be sanctified in truth. That's Jesus' heart as well, as we just saw in verse 17, that we be sanctified. And remember, just to put these two things together, by definition, sanctification simply means to be set apart for God's purposes, to be made holy, to be made 
holy. And so you can see how these things are intrinsically bound. It's the same concept over and over, just slightly different language. So if we consider Jesus' words in his John 17 prayer, in particular verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What might we conclude? Simple. Jesus was praying for what Peter wrote about years later in 1 Peter. Same thing. Jesus was praying for the same thing that Peter wrote about years later, which is the divine good intention of the Godhead to make us holy, just as God is holy. That's what sanctification is. We call that process sanctification. Jesus prayed for it. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Peter wrote about it years later and quoted uh, Holy Scripture by saying, Be holy as God himself is holy, because that's God's mandate, that's God's goodwill intention. I hope you see how harmonious the Word of God is. If and when you do, the following point will make all the sense in the world. Up here on the board, integrity and freedom. Without integrity to the truth, there is no freedom. Jesus said, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8.32 Lies, a.k.a., also known as anti-truth, are what keep people in bondage. The truth shall make you free. Lies keep you in bondage. If we accept the short definition for integrity as abiding in what you hold to be true, then it makes sense that Jesus encouraged his disciples with knowledge of abiding in the sphere of truth. Up here on the board, John 8, 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, in other words, have integrity to truth, you are truly disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If what? You abide in my word. If you abide in my word, if you keep my commandments. This is love. Didn't John write that in his epistles? This is love, that you walk in my commandments. Same thing, same concept. If you abide in my word, if you walk in my commandments, you, are, you abide in my love. Again, and if you do that thing, so Jesus said to the Jews, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As we learned earlier, the word of truth is what enables our integrity to be oriented with God's will. And when we're oriented to God this way, we enjoy supernatural freedom. Hence, this principle from Sunday on integrity and freedom. The secret to integrity, if you want to call it a secret, and therefore freedom, is abiding in the truth. It's this, what is he, he just keeps dancing. Do you see it? He keeps dancing around the same rose bush. In the middle is the truth. And how do you get the truth? How do you abide in the truth? You read the Bible. <laughs> you take in the Word of God. You walk in His commandments. You take in the Word of God with the intention of knowing how to behave, even. How to think, how to behave. Not just hear, but be a doer, James 1.22. All of these things make sense, Right? These should all be echoing the same thing over and over. That's all we've been doing now for months 
is just walking around the same sort of rosebush saying, yep, yep, yep. seems like everywhere we turn in the Bible, the Word of God is directing us this way. <laughs> saying, if you want to be set free, then you have to know the truth. Well, if you want to know the truth, you have to hear the Word of God or read it. Same thing, right? That's what sets you free. Of course, the underlying linchpin is that you, again, must have the truth in the first place. And that just sounds so simple, doesn't it? On paper, it looks easy enough. I mean, okay, if I want to be free, if I want to be sanctified, I have to have integrity to something. God says I have to have integrity to the truth, because the truth, that sets us free. You know? And all the guts in between, all the little whoop, the string of pearls in between, that's what we've been discussing. But at the end of the day, the truth sets you free. Hmm. Sounds simple. That doesn't sound hard at all. What's the problem then? What's the pitfall? What's the issue here? Why do so many people seemingly continue to live in lies. That's what it seems like. It's, it's, it's almost frustrating, is it not? Sometimes you feel like shaking people and you say, why are you still doing that thing? Why is your behavior not holy? Why are you not walking in His commandments? Why are you not abiding in His love? Why are so many people seemingly and strictly speaking, choosing to live in lies. And don't point fingers because we all do it. Some a lot more than others, that's the problem. Some hearing my voice right now a lot more than others. Some of you have giant logs sticking out of your eyes. <laughs> and you know what's funny? Because I can't say anything because I got one of my, you know, I can't do that thing necessarily. I mean, I have some leeway being a pastor just teaching you. But the Holy Spirit can. He doesn't have anything in his eye. So you can say, hey, you have a big fat log sticking out of your eye. How about we deal with that thing? So there's a lot of people that seem to be living in lies. So here's an analogy. I don't know how, hopefully this drives it home a little bit better. Suppose your parents taught you <clears throat> at a very young age that it's perfectly okay you know, as long as you're in love to have sex outside of marriage. That's the, the boundary condition for sex is as long as you're in love. Who hasn't heard that lie? That is the going lie. Well, now, not nowadays. It's so bad right now. It's not even love. It's just, I don't know. Do you have a, a condom? Well, it, honestly, you're just not going to get, just make sure you don't get AIDS or, or whatever, some other disease or something that's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. That's the boundary condition. It's so low, right? I got the whole front row laughing. I don't know what that deal is. But they're all like thir under 30. Is this something I need to know, you three? Yeah, I don't know. I guess that's, that's, that's an endorsement, right? That I'm not on crack. That the boundary condition for sex is not even love anymore. It's just self-preservation. How about that? Is that fair? Is that fair? Right? Okay. Anyways. So suppose you're taught at a very young age, that it's perfectly okay to have sex as long as you're in love. Okay, we know that's not true. We know that that's not God's will. 
okay? But suppose you buy that lie. So you go about your life having sex with whomever you think you're in love with. And all I can think about right now is that, oh, I'm so in love. Oh, I'm so in love, right? You don't get that? Oh, I'm so in love. And then all the regret. Oh. So you go about life having sex with whomever you think you're in love with. You even experiment with homosexuality since sex, you know, I don't know, it's college, and you, you love your buddy. Oh, you love your girlfriend. <laughs> Joey's laughing. Joey, this is how it happens. This is, this is bad news. If, if, listen, if the boundary condition is as long as you're in love, right? Right? Guys, hey, listen, talk to a homosexual. They love their partners. How about you, so you, you experiment with homosexuality, and under the guidelines that your parents gave you, uh, even sex that the Bible calls an abomination, like homosexuality, is then okay, is it not? So you buy this one lie at the beginning of all this, and then all these other little lies are precipitated from it. And then people looking in from the outside are going, why is this person living in all these kinds of lies? Or maybe it's even like incest or something like that. Father, some perverted father says, I love you, dear, and has sex with his daughter. Or maybe it turns out that you get really lonely and fall in love with an animal. That is in the Bible. It's called bestiality. That's in the Bible. And sometimes I wonder, I think some people love their animals more than they love human beings anyways. You think I'm wrong? Check back on this message. Take the note of the date 10 years from now if we're still here. We'll see how common certain things are. People don't even know if they're male or female anymore. What's the point of this story, though, up here on the board? Living in lies. One big lie promotes a bunch of downstream little lies. You only have to buy the big one up here, right? And then all of a sudden, there's precipitated all these other little lies that you're now able to live in with integrity. You see how that happens? You have integrity to a lie. And because you have integrity to a big lie, you have access to all these little lies. And your life now is riddled with all these little lies. Obviously, sex is by far not the only example. It's just one we can all uh, understand quite readily, right? And so you buy one big lie, and then you're living with all these downstream little lies, and then layers and layers upon layers. The result is living a life of lies, all of which rob a person of God's blessings. Sex outside of marriage is a perfect example. God will never bless it, ever. Never. Being lied to about sex outside of marriage is a big lie. Do you understand? It's a big lie that promotes all kinds of little perversions, little lies. So you set that in stone and then anything else below it in terms of being, being derivatives of it are all fair game. Now you've got a person about one lie living in a whole host of lies. But, so, all these perversions in view, if you were to ask the average American, or even a so-called trained psychologist, 
about when sex is permissible or good, they'd answer you with a lie. They would answer you with a lie. They'd say something stupid like, as long as you're in love, whatever the heck that means. Because what did we just learn about love? This is love, that you walk in my commandments. So even love is a huge, bigger lie. And what you end up with is a world that has, you know, a fierce, proclaimed integrity towards a morality structure that's built on lies. <laughs> and that's why they fight you tooth and nail. It's like, how dare you? I have integrity. I, I, I hold fast to what I believe. Right? And they think there's something good in having integrity. Even if the integrity produces garbage every time because it's integrity to a bunch of lies. Hmm. Truth shall set you free. Lies set you back to bondage. Here's what the Spirit gave us on Sunday up here on the board. The greatest form of intimacy, by the way, between two human beings has nothing to do with sex. Nothing to do with sex. I suggest you read these three blogs specifically, The Three Pillars of Satan's Unholy Economy, Temple Invasion, and the Bible says to run away. Read them. Some of you are like, really? Now I've got to write, read three? Hmm, I know, God forbid, right? Too busy having sex. Hmm. This is love, that you walk in my commandments. This is love. Hmm. Here's the more general point from Sunday's message up here on the board. The substance of integrity. The genius of Satan is this. He's shifted the idea of integrity from integrity to truth to integrity to feelings. Well, it feels right. It feels okay. I'm so in love. So when I'm so in love up here, it's okay to have sex outside of marriage because it feels so right. That's the genius of Satan. He shifted the idea of integrity from integrity to truth to integrity to feelings. The prior leads to freedom the latter bondage. Without integrity to truth being the centerpiece of our lives, we lack something we all want. A little something called stability. A little something called stability. Look around, folks. If, if people don't have the truth in their lives, they are the most unstable, miserable, awful, uh, implacable, gnarly people. They, they don't have any stability in their life, and they're miserable because of it. If you were to graph their daily emotions, it would be like this. One of the best things about being mature in Christ is it, it's like a dampening wave, any nerds. Over time, it ends up a lot smaller. The highs and lows are a lot smaller for someone that's mature in Christ. Christ was this. Flatline. We never get there. Emotional basket case. Right? Think of a radio wave. It's loud. It's raucous. It's all over the map. You know, 
as you mature in Christ, that thing dampens, right? It gets this way. Go to Ephesians 4.11 before I start teaching you physics. <laughs> Dampening sine waves, anybody? Ephesians 4, verse 11. People lack stability because they lack the truth. That's not freedom. When you lack stability, when you're unstable, you're in bondage. Ephesians 4.11, what am I trying to do? Be your enemy? You don't like me? Because I'm speaking against your flesh right now? Well, that's my job. And he gave some, he gave as apostles, and he gave some of the apostles, well, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and I had to train myself because in the New American Standard, he gave some as, right? Well, the ESV, it doesn't say that. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer, you ready? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Do you know how easy a target you are if you're an emotional basket case? Why do you think, <laughs> why do you think certain um, members of the opposite sex target emotional basket cases? Because they're easy prey. That's why. You make very easy prey when you're an emotional basket case. When you don't know left from right because you don't have the actual truth, you're living in a lie. You make easy prey. Easy peasy. Paul clearly wrote about the criticality of being taught the truth. Case in point, you hearing my voice this evening, a la Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. If you ignore the word of truth, you lack stability. And the only thing you're left with in the absence of truth is your emotions. Is your emotions. Which, sadly, describes the vast majority of this world, it seems. This is why this secular proverb makes so much sense up here on the board. I don't mind borrowing from it because it makes total sense. If you stand for nothing, you fall for anything. If you're an emotional basket case without any truth in your soul, you're constantly searching, you're going over here, you're reading magazines, you're reading self-help books, you're, reading, you're watching videos, you're watching movies, you're watching Oprah, you're watching Dr. Phil, you're trying to get all your um, morality and, and, and your self-esteem and, and your, your, your manner of, of functioning even in life from anywhere but here. And so you fall for anything because you don't stand for, you stand for nothing. And if you stand for nothing, you fall for anything. That's an indictment on America nowadays. In order to have integrity, it must be directed at something. So let's just retrain ourselves a little bit more. In order to have integrity, it must be directed at something. In other words, you've got to have integrity to something. The issue is integrity to what? That's what the Spirit's been saying now the past couple of messages. Integrity to what? 
The substance of your integrity is what matters most. Like the spirits pointed out to us over the years, a lot of people have integrity. But many of them have integrity to lies. Sex, the sex example was a perfect example. A lot of people have integrity to this lie that it's okay as long as you're, quote, in love. Well, then I ask you what love is. You know, it's an emotional high. You know, we care about each other. That's funny because the apostle of love, the apostle John, said this is love, that we walk in his commandments. Hmm, I wonder who's right. You, you emotional basket case? Or the apostle John, who walked with Jesus? Anybody want to take any bets? <laughs> Isn't that funny, though? This brings us back to the instigating point up here on the board. The substance of integrity. The genius of Satan is this. He shifted the idea of integrity from integrity to truth. Capital T, I'm pointing at the word of God. Integrity to truth to integrity to feelings. We worship and serve our feelings now. The prior leads to freedom, the latter bondage. On a more practical note, here's some food for thought regarding the state of Christian church even nowadays. Contemporary Christianity uh, encouragement, and I have it in quotes because it's not really encouragement, but they have integrity to what they believe. It's just what they believe, even though they call themselves Christians, isn't biblical. Focus on feelings rather than truth. You know how easy it would be for me? All right, I just talked about it. In my head, I was thinking about some sleazy jackass going into a bar and picking up some train wreck of a woman. How's that any different than a preacher in a position of strength to call in a bunch of unstable people and then lie to them and take advantage of them? Invite a bunch of emotional basket cases in. You know how easy that is to do? Happens all the time. People make a lot of money doing it, too. Hmm. Focus on feelings rather than truth. Read commentaries and devotionals rather than the Bible. Encourage fleshly desires rather than kill them. Align with American avarice, sloth, and idolatry. And then, of course, promote a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. That's what the average, it seems like, the average Christian contemporary church even teaches as, and then calls it encouragement. What's the problem? The problem is that those things encourage the human flesh, not the new creature. It's, those things don't seek out the integrity that the new creature functions with on the word of truth. They seek out the human flesh that lives on lies, who's oriented to the father of lies, Satan himself. On Sunday, we took a short trip down memory lane up here on the board. Feelings versus truth. People feel a lot of things that are, quote, right, even as it pertains to the things of God. However, many so-called, quote, Christians today have feelings void of biblical training. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, Romans 10, 17, uh, hearing, uh, faith comes from hearing, the word of truth, the word of Christ. In the absence of divine knowledge, their conscience is a slave to false data. In other words, the doctrines of demons. Oh, they have integrity, 
but they have integrity to, let's say, sex if you love them. That's a, that's a demonic doctrine. Literally. Not kind of, not maybe, not just a little off. It literally is a demonic doctrine. The demons love when people believe that false doctrine. Because, like I said, it precipitates a whole lot of other garbage. Want to one-up that one even? Tackle love. Get a person to believe in a false love. Hmm. Here's a question. Which, which feels better to you, you personally? Which, which of the following feels better? Knowing you're a member of North Christian Church or knowing that you're learning truth while at North Christian Church? Which one makes you feel better? I'm a member of North Christian Church. Or knowing that you're learning truth while you happen to be at North Christian Church. Which one makes you feel better? And be honest. Be honest. Some of you are like, I'm only here right now even because I'm just a member. Because I'm going through the motions. Because that's what I am. I'm a, I'm a robot. I'm really not that interested. I got other, I don't know. Who knows? I got other things on my mind right now. Maybe for some of you, it actually is sex. And it actually is outside of marriage. And the Spirit's talking literally directly to you, and you're not even paying attention. I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. But that's the question the Spirit's got on the table for us. Which one feels better to you? Knowing you're a member or knowing you're learning the truth? Which is more important, membership or learning truth? A lot of popular churches promote the prior, calling for endless and mindless you know, celebration of being a Christian. That's what they're celebrating. The feeling of belonging. The feeling of, you know, being a Christian. Ah, that's what's going to set me free. See, that's the truth. I'm, I'm a Christian now. You know, I'm, I, I've devoted myself to Christ. I'm going to be a Christian. And that becomes your idol. That becomes the focal point, that you are being a Christian. That's what you end up uh, celebrating. You're celebrating being a Christian. You're not celebrating Christ. You're not selling, celebrating the object of Christianity itself. You know, like Christianity. <laughs> you're not celebrating him. You're celebrating you. That's what idolatry looks like. So don't miss the subtlety. What are we celebrating? Have I ever said that before? That is a recurring theme for years. Americans love to celebrate, do we not? We love it. It's like our favorite pastime. It only gets better when we add more food to it. Is that fair? Celebrate, woo! Food, oh my God. Right? Celebration with food, it's all over. Add liquor, lights out. Right? Done. We're good for the whole weekend. Right? We can take this celebration for the whole weekend. Food, avarice, booze. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds productive. We aren't called to celebrate the feeling of belonging. That's how cults form. We are called to celebrate the word of God, the word of truth. That is Christ himself. Satan is much happier 
if you celebrate church membership and how nice it, quote, feels to belong to something bigger than yourself. Satan loves when you do that thing. Doesn't that just sound like worldly hogwash, though? Isn't that what every, um, most memberships are? You know what I'm saying? I remember when I was a kid, this is, this is how stupid I was, right? We were, we were pretty broke as kids. We were below the poverty line for years and years. And uh, we, we would get a certain a sum of money, let's say. Like, I don't know, maybe it was like 100 bucks at Christmas time. We'd each get like $100, right? I remember spending like $70. Now, I'm 50 years old. This would have been 35 or more years ago. I remember spending $70 back in the day. That's probably like, what, 300 now? I don't know. Some huge number now, right? Three, 400 bucks, right? I'm serious, right? With inflation, it's probably like three or $400 right now, right? On a members-only jacket. Remember those? Oh, and it's still, listen, all oh, those things is piece of nylon, two pieces of nylon sewed together, right? And it, but the, here's the thing. Members only, one little tag, a black tag with white letters. I remember it because I was an idolized. I was like, yeah, we're broke, but I got members only. I think it was, by the end of my his life, it was dirty, you know. I was like, but I had a members only. Spent everything I had on one gift, basically. Members only. That's so stupid. But you know what? It's genius. Whoever marketed it is genius. Because we love to belong. That was the in club. If you had a members only jacket, in other words, if you were so stupid to spend $70, right? You could be a member of this club that got to wear this jacket with those stupid lapels. <laughs> and it was like up to here with a little beard. He's so stupid looking. <laughs> right? And uh, <clears throat> anyways, you could make fun of the guys that had the knockoffs. It was like members Jonesy or something like that. Right? <laughs> you know? Because that was like, it felt good to belong. Stupid. Stupid. Idiot. Hmm, that's my life. What, do you, what are we celebrating? Celebration demands a root cause, otherwise it is unfounded emotionalism. How can we supposedly celebrate Jesus if we don't know the Word of God? Him. Wouldn't this be nothing more than celebrating for the sake of celebrating? Right? I mean, in His name. A lot of people chant His name even. I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. Okay? Um... John said, this is love that you walk in his commandments. So what commandments are you walking in? I don't know any. I just love Jesus. Wait a minute. Are you saying that just because you want to be in the in crowd? Are you saying that so that you can become your own idol again? Is this a form of idolatry, just a little twisted one? Where you're now using Jesus' good name to be a member only? And instead of a members-only jacket, you have, you know, a T-shirt that says, you know, John 3.16, so that the rest of the world knows that you belong to this small group of special people. That's what this is about. That's what this has become for you. That's ungodliness. That's bondage. 
That's the whole point. He doesn't want you worshiping, serving your feelings about being a so-called Christian. He wants you to worship and serve him. So that's what a lot of people celebrate. They celebrate in a, in a backhanded way. They're celebrating themselves. That's why he keeps having us ask that question. What is it that we're celebrating? The reality is, for most of us, we're celebrating ourselves. And we just sprinkle in biblical terminology or maybe Jesus Christ once in a while so that we can mask it. But really, we're just, as the last phrase says, we're just satisfying our emotional desire to feel good. So, and I'm almost out of time, the mantra in today's Christian churches, quote-unquote, is make it feel good. And that's sufficient. Just make it feel good. If you feel good, it's good. If it feels good, it's right. Satan uses such lies to keep people from ever settling on and abiding in the word of truth. There is no substitute for truth, certainly not emotions. Certainly not your, quote, feelings. Most so-called Christians I know are too wound up in emotionalism to even have time for truth. Some of that might even, that might even be you right now. I don't know. I know you've had long days. Some of you work long hours. Some, you know, some of you haven't worked long hours. But your emotionalism has drained you to the point where you're not even here. You're like, I'm so glad he just said he's almost out of time. It's the first thing you've heard in 15 minutes. Right? Well, that's, that's your judgment. That's the whole point. That's not my judgment. I can make fun of it. You know, we all get a good laugh. But that's the, the indictment's on you. That's your judgment. If you're not present when the word of God is being taught, unadulterated like this, the judgment's on you. You deserve to be in bondage when you leave here. You deserve to be miserable. You deserve all the awful things that you're experiencing day in and day out. Those, the, dysfun you deserve dysfunction junction for rejecting the word of truth because it's the truth whoop, that sets you free. All we're doing is surveying the guts of all that. So here's what I close with. You, my friends, ought to feel so blessed right now. Why? Some of you are like, because it's almost over. <laughs> I kind of do. Right? It feels good. And I say this with complete humility and complete integrity. You have a pastor that's unwilling to compromise the word of truth in order to pique your emotionalism. You got a pastor that refuses to back down from the truth that ultimately sets you free. And you've got a pastor that embodies the following. Go to 1 Timothy 1, 5, and then we'll close. You should feel blessed. If you're going to feel anything, feel blessed. So you have a right to feel that way because that's derived from truth. And so there's nothing wrong with emotions as long as they're derived or precipitated from truth but they never lead the truth. 1 Timothy 1.5, this is all I really want, my friends. If you don't believe this, find another church. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is, to love, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
That is honest to goodness all I want. Am I perfect? Not even close. But is that where my heart is at? You bet. And the day, I promise you, unless I go cuckoo, the day that I lose that, that edge, if you want to call it that, I will, I will step down. I will st- there have been times in my career over the past decade that I almost did because I thought I was losing it. I thought I wasn't going to serve you the way I need to serve you. And I had at least enough integrity to say, I'm not going to do a good job right now. I need to get out of this for the sake of the sheep. That's what integrity looks like. You have to call a spade a spade, right? If you have a calling and you're not living up to that calling and it's starting to make you wonder, then you should step back. Right? But here's what I'll leave you with. Next one? What about this one? Oh, right here. Hold on. Yep. I'll leave you with this one. A pastor's job is never to appease the flesh. Never. Rather, a pastor's job is to see human flesh killed. I'm not talking about physical, obviously. I'm talking about the flesh. The old nature, if you would. My job is never to appease that thing. I don't want to, listen, I don't want to encourage that thing this far. Not even this far. Remember that old saying, give them an inch, they take a mile? That's the flesh. I don't want to encourage it that much in you. Not even close. I'd rather see that thing killed. I want to pounce on it. Which is why, if you notice from this pulpit, he spends an awful lot of time, we spend an awful lot of time scurrying after little creatures in our souls, right? Little, little wisps of shadows, little, you know, little, little bones the size of your cochlea. Huh? Anybody know what that is? Tammy does because it's in your ear, the little bones, right? Oh, Michelle, stop. She'll say, I know too. I know too. Tammy's not that smart. She said it. <laughs> we spend a lot of time chasing after all these little, like these little things. Why? Because that's, how, that's all it takes for cancer. The human flesh doesn't need much, and we can't tolerate it. We go looking for those things because we want to kill them on the spot. We want to ferret them out of our soul. Why? Because we want to put what's supposed to be there, which is the truth, because the truth sets us what? Free. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege to study your word here this evening, to fellowship together as family. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and then out to a world that's just decaying. Father, we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.